Thank you, James. Hey, everyone. Good to see you all today. Uh, this morning, we're going to talk about dysfunctional families. It'll be fun. Sort of. Define fun, yes. And define, define dysfunctional. Um, I was going to title this David Ruins Joseph and the Amazing Technical Art Dreamcoat, uh, which you'll understand as we get into the Joseph story from the Bible in a little bit. Uh, but first, a show of hands. How many of you are from dysfunctional families? Bold. Okay. Yes. Okay. It's actually a trick question because all families are dysfunctional. <laughs> we should all have our hands up. Um, actually, it's more of a trick because dysfunction as a quality is not a binary, but a spectrum. And I could ask us all to rate maybe one to 10 scale. How dysfunctional is your family of origin? And then you could argue with your family of origin about that scale and the number you select. That would be fun. Um, more fun than thinking about our own families of origin dysfunction is watching other people's dysfunction, especially on TV. Like, for example, the Bluth family from Arrested Development, old show. I know, some of you haven't seen it. Um, eight out of 10 dysfunction, likely, yes? I'm seeing some head nods, for sure. How about the Lannisters from Game of Thrones? <laughs> 10, 10 out of 10 level dysfunction. Uh, we've got the Simpsons, yeah, lots of dysfunction there. And we've got the Gilmores from our beloved Gilmore girls. Some are all like, no, they're perfect. Then why is the granddaughter closer to the grandparents than their own daughter, huh? In the photo, yes? And then finally, the Rose family from Schitt's Creek. Now, they're a great example of, of watching because what they start with really high levels of dysfunction, poor communication patterns, little emotional or relational intimacy, high demands where each family member's status depends on their performance and achievement within the family, yes, and so on. But by the end of the show, it's really transformed. They not only have each individual undergone a redemptive arc, but the whole family system has been transformed and redeemed. It's a lovely, lovely show. Uh, okay, so family dysfunction is uh, universal. And uh, we can rate at, at different levels, of course, but the good news is that no matter the level of family dysfunction that we find ourselves, God's gifts are available through and in, and sometimes despite, the dysfunction of our families. God is still here, present, active, pursuing us with God's compassion and kindness, no matter what kind of family we come from. And there is always a possibility for transformation and healing, both of individuals and for the whole family system to experience. So this morning, we're going to take a closer look at uh, this promise of God's gifts in the midst of family dysfunction. And uh, we're going to look at the Joseph story, as I alluded to earlier. Now, the Joseph story in the Bible is 13 chapters long, so you'll be glad to hear we are not going to read all 13 chapters this morning. Um, it's one of the longest continuous stories of, of one person in the Bible from the book of Genesis. And what we're going to see 
is that there is a ton of family dysfunction that never changes. The dysfunction remains, but we'll still see God's gifts that are present despite that dysfunction. Okay? Now, some background before we get to the story. Joseph is one of 12 sons, the 12 sons of Jacob, also called Israel. So Jacob and Israel are the same person, renamed. And Jacob, as you'll see there, has four wives. Two of them are sisters. Rachel and Leah. Ah, family. Rachel and Leah are sisters. And then Bilhah and Zilpah are slaves, one belonging to each of the sisters, Leah and Rachel. Rachel is Jacob's favorite wife of the four. He has favorites. He plays favorites. This is not going to go well. Okay? The dynamics of the family are very messy, and the messiness then is compounded and passed on to the 12 sons, as we'll see in our story. So here we go. The opening lines of our Joseph story from Genesis chapter 37. Joseph, being 17 years old, was shepherding the flock with his brothers. He was a helper to the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Uh-oh, someone's going to get it. Okay, and I, he's going to tell on them. And I love this word helper here. It, it has the image to me like Joseph is the manager just standing there like, good job, guys. Good job. Keep it up. And they're doing all the work, right? Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his children because he was the son of his old age. And he made him an amazing technicolor dream coat, an ornamented robe. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. So right away, some very problematic dynamics within the family system. Jacob has not only a favorite wife, but a favorite son, Joseph. Of all the other sons, he gives a lavish gift to one of them, this cherished ornamented robe to his favored son, Joseph. And um, he shows him more love and affection and attention and provides more for this son. And it causes the other brothers to hate Joseph. Now, having favorites, a favorite child within a family system, is going to produce bad, unhealthy dynamics in any system. And it's not only bad for the other kids who are not favored, it's bad for the kid who's favored as well, although it might not be obvious at first glance. But the result of this favoritism is that it sets Joseph apart from the other brothers. They hate him, and they form their own alliance and equality and loyalty among themselves that excludes Joseph. He's over there. He's an outsider, and the rest of us were together because that jerk gets dad's favoritism. Okay, the story goes on. Once, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, listen to this dream I dreamed, guys. There we were, binding sheaves in the field, and suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright. Then your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to have dominion 
over us. So they hated him even more because of his dreams and his words. Ah, okay, there are a couple uh, different interpretive traditions on this particular bit, which I appreciate. One is, in the most common, the first one, is, is straightforward, that Joseph has dreams, and he rather naively just shares the dream that he has. The other interpretive tradition, which I appreciate, is that he doesn't actually have a dream. He just, <laughs> he's just <laughs> making it up and like rubbing his brother's face in the fact that he's awesome and special. He's the favored one. Right, so either one feels plausible to me at this point in the story. Um, but this is our setup, a very high degree of family dysfunction. And what we can expect is that it's going to produce harm. It's going to produce some bad effects. And that's exactly what we see. All right, so instead of reading the rest, I'm going to quickly summarize the remainder of the story in three acts. Act one. The death of Joseph. Sort of. Joseph's brothers conspire to kill him. So enraged are they by the favoritism, they decide to kill him. But they change their minds. Instead of killing him, they're going to sell him into slavery. A band of traders comes by. They sell Joseph to this band of traders. The traders go to Egypt and resell Joseph into slavery in Egypt, far away from the land where they occupy. The brothers then lie to their father. They bring the ornamented robe covered in blood. They tell their father that a wild beast has killed Joseph and the blood is here. Look, Jacob, the father, laments and grieves the death of his favored son. Act two, Joseph ascends. Joseph is a slave in Egypt, but it gets worse. Accused of infidelity, he lands in prison. But there he meets two of Pharaoh's former servants who have dreams. And Joseph, crafty, gives them a dream interpretation. One of the servants is restored to Pharaoh's service. And Pharaoh then reports these dreams that he cannot interpret. And the servant remembers, aha, Joseph, this guy in your prison, knows how to interpret dreams. Call him, he'll do it. Pharaoh calls Joseph. Joseph interprets the dreams, telling him there's going to be seven years of plenty in Egypt, plentiful harvests, followed by seven years of famine. So get ready, Pharaoh, it's coming. Pharaoh says, thank you very much, Joseph. That's really helpful. And I guess what? You're going to be in charge of administering the kingdom of Egypt to make sure we get through this seven-year famine. Um, I want to read the Bible passage related to this because it's, it's worth reading. Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only with regard to the throne will I be greater than you. See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Removing his signet ring from his hand, Pharaoh put it on Joseph's hand. He arrayed him in garments of fine linen. Ooh, clothing, theme connection. And put a gold chain around his neck. Moreover, Pharaoh gave Joseph Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, as his wife. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. In short, Joseph becomes prime minister of Egypt. Egypt. 
what a reversal of fortunes. He even has a political marriage, high-status marriage arranged for him to secure his position forever in this high-status position as prime minister of Egypt. He has two sons with this wife, which we'll get to in a little bit. Um, okay, one more detail, very crucial before we go into Act 3. Unfortunately, Joseph as prime minister uses his power very, very badly. During the famine, the entire nation is starving. They need food. They come to their prime minister, and they ask him for food. And he says, sure, I've got lots because I've prepared. I'm going to give you food and grain. In exchange, you must give me your land. The entire nation gives up its land and comes under the control of Pharaoh. In other words, by the end of the story, the entire nation is a kind of bond servant, a kind of slavery to Pharaoh. That is the system that Joseph creates and implements over the entire nation. He creates slavery in Egypt. Act three, a family reunion. I just love family reunions, especially when they're dysfunctional family reunions. <laughs> okay, the famine is so severe, it extends into the land of Israel, where Joseph's family is, his brothers and his father. Uh, and his father says, you know what? I've heard that in the land of Egypt, they've got food. So go to Egypt, my sons. Accept you, Benjamin. So <laughs> this is great. Jacob sends 10 of the remaining 11 sons because Benjamin is now his favorite son. He, he didn't like learn anything about having a favorite. He just, when Joseph dies, he just transfers the favoritism to a different son. So he sends the other 10. You go into the lion's den, okay? Because we're not friends with Egypt. But you go into the lion's den, see if you can get food, food for us. And they're like, okay, dad. So they go and they meet the prime minister of Egypt, Joseph, their brother, whom they do not recognize. He reveals hidden. Eventually, through a really fun series of events, Joseph reveals the big reveal. I'm your brother, Joseph. They have a tearful reunion. Eventually, Joseph has a reunion with his father, and Benjamin comes to. The son who was dead is alive again. That which is lost is found. Here's one interaction I want to read from uh, the Bible. And this is a, one of the treasured verses that you'll see, you'll see us read here in the Bible. Um, Joseph is weeping at this point in the story. Um, their father has died, and they are having another kind of moment, the brothers. Then his brothers also wept, fell down before him and said, We are here as your slaves. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good. In order to preserve a numerous people as God is doing today. So have no fear. I myself will provide for you and your little ones. In this way, he reassured them, speaking kindly to them. So Joseph decides not to enact revenge. How kind. But he's not going to get back at his brothers. 
for their choice to sell him into slavery. And he makes this claim. He says, what you intended for harm, God intended for good. And this has been a treasured line for readers across the centuries for good reason. It's a really hopeful message, right? That this sense that no matter what kind of harm or ill that we have experienced, there is a possibility for God to make of it good. Good things can come from harm. And when we apply this to our own lives, that's good news. Whatever kind of background we come from, whatever harm we've experienced, there's a possibility to know God's gifts, to experience God's goodness today. It's a beautiful truth, and I hope we can hear that afresh today and and receive that promise for ourselves. But here's the thing. God wants so much more for us than what we see in this story of Joseph. As we look more closely, we see that nothing actually changes within the family system. And there's not actually that much redemption or transformation. And to to get at this, I want to share a concept that I've been learning in some grad school classes that I'm in. So I'm in a um, marriage and family therapy program right now through Mount Mercy University in Cedar Rapids. And one of the concepts I'm learning, learning about family systems theory is what's called first order change versus second order change. Okay, so really quickly, first order change is small changes that occur within a system, but the changes are reversible. They could go back and forth. And the fundamental systemic patterns of that system remain the same, and the values remain the same as well. So that's what we call first order change that happens within a system. So you hear it, there's changes that happen, but Really, the system itself, the values of the system are the same. They remain the same. There's no bigger transformation. In second order change, there's transformational change to the whole system. There's new patterns of relating. There's new values that emerge, a new story that is told. And you can't really go back to the old way. Okay, so let me give you an example. So let's say um, in first order change, Let's say there's a couple who fights a lot with open hostility. One member of the couple decides to withdraw. The other person also withdraws. They're not talking anymore. Okay? This is what we call first-order change because at any point, they could go back to open fighting hostility. They're kind of just quiet and withdrawn, but they're still defined by hostility. So there's no real fundamental change to this system. Now, second-order change, let's say the couple fights openly with hostility. They decide together that for every fight, they're going to purposefully engage in five acts of kindness and affection towards the other. Okay? Soon, guess what? The couple finds that their hostility is dissipating, and their whole system transforms. They have new, a new value, replaces a hostility, a new story emerges with a couple. Okay? So you hear the difference there. Joseph, in our story, what we see is that he never experiences second-order change. The family never experiences second-order change. They're all first-order changers. There's no, uh, yeah, transformation. The redemption that happens, the good things from God, they all happen despite the ill and the harm that's caused. So here's uh, to get at it. First, Jacob's favoritism never changes, and I alluded to this. 
He has a favorite son. That favorite son dies. Instead of learning from that, like, oh, that didn't go well. (laughs) Maybe I should do something different. No, no, no. I'm just going to pick a new favorite. The value system remains the same. The family system does not change. Uh, One brother always occupies a higher status role than all the other brothers. And we didn't get into this very much, but the eldest brother, Reuben, has a high status role. He fails at one point in the story, so he's replaced by Judah. Judah becomes a high status role in the family system, which is important later on because David, King David, comes from the tribe of Judah. Um, So literarily and thematically, it's very important that Judah becomes the high status son, the high, high status tribe, if you will. But that's kind of another story. And then finally, Joseph remains the perpetual outsider. Yes, they have this family reunion, reunification, and it's sweet, but it doesn't produce any kind of transformational change. Joseph decides not to enact revenge. Good, that's good. Kind of the baseline. Okay, but he remains an outsider, and we can see this through several ways. So, First of all, he marries an Egyptian, not exactly his choice, but he does. All the other brothers marry within their tribe, and that becomes crucial later on. Um, Secondly, in the closing line of Genesis, the very last verse of Genesis, excuse me, Joseph is mummified in Egypt. He doesn't undergo the same burial rites of all his brothers and all of his tribe. He's mummified. This, by the way, could be just as important as the first line in Genesis, in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth. And you read the last line, and there's the mummification of Jacob's favored son. Whoa. Third, Joseph's family is not carried on in the 12 tribes. So all the other sons are named by, with their tribes are passed on. So there's a tribe of Simeon, a tribe of Asher, a tribe of Reuben. There is no tribe of Joseph. He skipped over. His two sons become tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim. So Joseph is just, he's left out of the story. There's no tribe of Joseph. And finally, his perpetual outsider, most importantly perhaps, it is Joseph who turns Egypt into a slave state. He enacts the slavery that will ensnare and enslave all of the brothers' descendants in Egypt. And it's not till Moses comes 400 years later that they are set free. But Joseph, he enacts this thing, this this horrible system. And if you think about it, he does the exact same thing that he himself experienced at age 17. So in the story, Joseph's brothers are going to kill him, but instead they sell him into slavery. Again, not his choice, but later on in his adult life, when people are starving, he gives them a choice. You can either die of starvation or become slaves of Pharaoh. The same horrible bind that he himself experienced at age 17, he then creates for an entire nation. He never deals with his childhood trauma. And so he causes a nation to suffer what he himself suffered. 
this story of Joseph presents a painful truth. And that is that if we do not get the healing that we need from our trauma, we will pass it on. We will inevitably cause others around us to suffer what we ourselves suffered. The good news is still there, though. And that's this line again, going back here, that Joseph's words to his brothers, they're still remarkable wisdom and truth. What you intended for harm, God intended for good. Even though there is no massive transformation or healing to Joseph or his family, God's gifts are still here. God's gifts are still manifest. God's provision, God's leading and guiding, God's compassion and kindness, still evident. And that's true with us today. No matter where we come from, no matter what we've experienced, God's gifts are here. God's kindness and compassion. And, and, if we want we can lean into the healing and transformation that God offers. Not only can we know and experience God's kindness and compassion, but we can lean into healing, that we can be transformed, that family systems, the systems that we're part of can be transformed, to receive a second-order change, as family systems calls it. That's the possibility of faith. It's what I hear when Jesus calls his disciples again and again. We see the pattern of him saying, come, follow me. Follow me. Come and follow me. Follow me into a new system, a new pattern of relationships, a transformed way of living, a new story. That is the promise of Jesus, the promise of faith as we go into it today. And that is, that is the invitation. We all come from dysfunctional families to one degree or the other. We are all invited into healing and transformation despite that dysfunction, despite whatever ill or harm we have received. And we can know the healing that is possible. I want to close with uh, a prayer, a moment for prayer and reflection, as I often do. So I want to invite us this morning to simply bring before God our family systems, okay? And you can choose what that looks like for you. So you can choose your family of origin, that family system. You could choose today's system, whatever that means for you, if you're whatever family you're a part of. Um, if you want, you could choose a friendship system. We could talk about the values of a group of friends, too. Same thing applies, so it's up to you. So uh, we'll bring that before God in prayer and, and see where it goes from there, okay? So get comfortable in your chair. Join me as you wish. A loving, gracious God, uh, we see the story of Joseph today, and we see that while you're there and good gifts are there, that there was so much more that could have happened and today, we want to know that something more, that healing and transformation. And we bring before you our family systems, the relationships that we're a part of. 
We invite you to speak to us about those systems, even now. Where do you see that we could receive your healing? Where could we experience transformation where it's needed, individually and collectively as a system? Speak to us, O oh God. So if it helps, you can just imagine each person of your system. You can imagine God there with you in the midst of that system. Or Jesus, imagine Jesus present with you, with all those relationships you're naming. And what is, what is Jesus' invitation for you within that system? God, help us, give us courage, give us insight as we continue to follow you into your ways. Help us to grasp hold of that new story, that, that transformational change and healing that we long for. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Um, okay, a final word. Um, many of us have experienced a pretty high level of dysfunction from families of origin. Okay, And when that's the case, it can often be helpful to seek professional help and intervention through counseling or therapy. Uh, I myself have done so and have benefited tremendously from the therapy that I've received. And so I would strongly recommend take advantage of professional resources. If you have trouble or thinking about that or where to even go, happy to talk with you or talk with other staff. We'd be happy to help.